Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. There's no shortage of historical work being done on Canada's foreign relations. The work of diplomats, civil servants, and politicians in projecting Canada in the world has been brought to light by a wide variety of scholars for over 50 years. But the story has not been told entirely. A new wave of historians is looking at Canada's relationship with the world through the lens of race, and their thoughts are leading to new insights, but also some controversy and, dare I say it, some uncomfortable conversations. To talk about this relatively new development is Francine McKenzie, history professor at Western University. She's the co-editor of a book entitled Dominion of Race, Rethinking Canada's International History, published by the University of British Columbia Press. Her co-editors are Laura Madocoro and David Marin. I reached Professor McKenzie at her office in London, Ontario. Francine McKenzie, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. Well, it's a pleasure. Your book brings together a dozen authors who have contributed chapters as diverse as Prime Minister Borden's intervention at the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, the history of the rapport between Haiti and Quebec, the relationship between African-American soldiers in the Northwest Territories and the Yukon. What prompted you and your colleagues to bring this book project together? Uh, many of the contributors to the to Dominion of Race, to the book, came together at a workshop that I was able to organize in 2013 when I was a visiting professor at Harvard, and one of my very pleasant tasks was to organize a workshop. And I decided to hold it on the theme of race and Canada's international history because I had, in my own work, started to think about race in conjunction with the particular project that I'd been working on a little earlier about, Canada, about Canada's reaction to the Italian invasion of Ethiopia uh, in the 1930s before the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing my research, it got me thinking about how people in Canada at the time had these contrary ideas about what was going on. Many Canadians were not particularly fond of Mussolini, but they also believed that European empires had a kind of civilizing influence. And so on the one hand, they were not approving of the invasion of Ethiopia, a sovereign country. But on the other hand, they thought it was right that, um, or they thought it was appropriate that European countries had this civilizing role to play with respect to African countries. And I was really struck by this dissonance between these ideas. And then I started thinking about the way I had always been told the story about Canada's involvement in the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. And it was a story that emphasized the role of Walter Riddell, Canada's representative to the League of Nations, and how he had suggested that there should be oil sanctions placed on Italy. And this provoked um, a kind of major headlines in, in newspapers of the world, calling on the Canadian proposal to bring about sanctions. And the newly elected government of Mackenzie King was pretty much uh, horrified. Horrified. I was going to use the word, yes. <laughs> yeah, horrified. And decided, you know, they didn't want to be in this kind of international spotlight, especially mm-hmm. if they seemed to be held somehow responsible for stoking um, international tensions. And so that that version that I'd always heard didn't seem to make place for this other research that I was finding in material about these conflicting attitudes in Canada about what was happening to Ethiopia. So I decided I wanted to learn more about it, and the best way to do it was in, to invite all kinds of scholars in Canada who were working on similar kinds of questions. 
I want to stay with you as a historian. Your your focus has been international trade. You, you've written a book, you've written books, and, and articles on uh, trade from a global perspective, not a, Can- a particularly Canadian perspective. I mean, was it was it the the Ethiopia, the Canada Ethiopia crisis? So I think for me it began with that. I had been, you know, and first of all, I should add, I always think of myself as a Canadian historian, um, even if I write about global trade. Um, there's always lots of Canada in my in my work. Either it's the use of the Canadian archives, mm-hmm. or other Canadian materials, or Canadian the work of Canadian diplomats and, and trade policy officials and trade negotiators. So I always kind of have a Canadian base when I move into international or global history, and that's certainly true of the work I've done on the history of global trade. Um, but it, I think it really did start for me with this project on the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. And then once I saw that race was a factor, it just began to... I I began to see it in more places, including in the work that I was doing on the history of global trade. So if I can leave Dominion of Race aside for for one minute, I have a a book that I finished called The Gat and Global Order in the Post-War Era um, that looks at one of the institutions that was set up after World War II alongside the United Nations and the IMF. It's called The Gat, the General Agreement on Tariffs in Trade. And I actually have, I mean, race is a theme that runs through that volume as well, which is not what I expected to be writing when I first started that project. And so race runs through it in, in what way? In the sense that the the uh, the governing countries, let's say the dominant countries in trade, had particular views of the developing world or the third world as they called it then? How did race play into this? So it played in in several ways. I mean, the development angle is a really important part of that story. Um, But I also see it in the way that the GATT was set up, that the structures and the operations and the norms reinforced privilege and advantage, reinforced those who were powerful and those who were less powerful. They determined what were priorities and what were not priorities. I think it also came out when thinking about the ways in which – there was this confident assumption that liberal trade, so basically making markets more accessible, that that would work for everybody, that everyone would benefit from that, even though there was a post-colonial critique that, in fact, those very, that very practice of liberal trade reinforced inequalities and power, kind of structural power inequalities in, in the world. Um, but this universalist confidence in the GATT, and in fact, that infuses much of, of the United Nations system that was set up after World War II, it really reflected the Western experience more than the experience of others. Mm -hmm. And that when there were arguments made against this, challenging how good it would be for everybody, they're often dismissed as radical or irrational or dangerous. And those are the same kinds of dismissals that different people who contributed to Dominion of Race also found Mm -hmm. um, in in their work. In in, in the past few years, let's say over the last 40 years, critics uh, or criticalist school uh, members of, of international relations would have would have called this really the the demonstration of capitalist strength. You're saying, in addition to capitalism and and to the everything that's inherent to capitalism in terms of domination, there, there's an element of race. Yeah, I think I think there is in there, and, the, and the, again, the assumption that these kinds of ways of organizing the economy or economic exchange that um, there's one system that will work well for all. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, um, or in trying to understand why it doesn't work in some places, the explanations that that um, that people turn to often you know, emphasize that there's a problem elsewhere, or rather than see, for instance, that the way in which we have structured our economy or our global system maintains those inequalities and those dynamics. 
You also talk about white supremacy as an objective and Canada being a part of the thrust to ensure that the white race dominates international affairs. Do you, how do you see this affecting Canadian foreign policy? So I think we actually talk about white supremacy fairly carefully in a fairly nuanced way. It's not a, it's, you know, race is, study of race is a really nuanced subject, right? It is, and, it is. Um, so if, but if you're asking me, where do I see a kind of white supremacist impulse most obviously playing out in, mm-hmm. in the history of Canadian foreign policy, and it comes out in dominion of race, yes. I would say it comes out in the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the Canadian state. Okay. Um, and Whitney Lackenbauer and David Webster in our volume look at that. So in, the, in Whitney Lackenbauer's chapter, he looks at the state's um, attempts to control the bodies of Indigenous women and contact between Indigenous women and African-American um, servicemen. Right. And David Webster looks at the way in which um, the state basically denied and, and marginalized attempts by um, Indigenous communities to affirm their sovereignty right. and independence. So I, you, I think there are some yeah. other ways as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. So one is in, in the way in which Canada's national identity has been understood, that it gives rise to values and priorities that make some people more included than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and John Price and Laura Matacoro and David Gorman, or pardon me, Daniel Gorman, look at aspects of that in the book. And I think it also comes out in, in perhaps surprising um, chapters that look at the very careful or even paternalistic engagement of the government of Canada um, with the process of decolonization. And David Marin, Dan Gorman, and Kevin Spooner in the, in the book look at aspects of that as well. So we have, for example, uh, examples of this paternalistic attitude would be, let's say, regarding Canada's negotiations with the, the Japanese government to restrict emigration uh, in the early 20th century. Would that, that would be part of that uh, discussion? Well, actually, the case of Japan is a really interesting one, mm-hmm. because while there was a desire on the part of the Canadian government to restrict Japanese immigration, they also had to come to grips with the fact that Japan was an ally of Great Britain. Right. That Japan, after it defeated Russia in, in the war in 1904-1905, I hope I've got my dates right, yeah. um, Japan clearly asserted itself as a, a very powerful state. Indeed. And so there, the way in which kind of race-affected policies or attitudes towards Japan were complicated, I suppose, on the one hand, trying to maintain that relationship um, and and, work, and and facilitate, I guess, was a stronger British imperial alliance around the world, at the same time trying to limit restrict Japanese immigration to Canada. Mm-hmm. Do you see, I mean, how does the school of thought perceive Canadian peacekeeping, let's say, from the 1950s to the, to really to the end of peacekeeping, if we can call it that, in the years, in the years 2000? Does, is there a particular view of peacekeeping when you're looking at that activity through the lens of race? So, I just want to back up for a minute and make clear that when you use the lens of race, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily going to lead to one kind of Conclusion. It's not one way of looking at things. And, and as we said a minute ago, the impact of race is nuanced and often contradictory. And so it's unlikely that it's going to lead to one particular um, view. And, and interestingly, peacekeeping is not a subject uh, that any of the contributors take up in Dominion of Race, mm-hmm. but it, it's one that other scholars like Shireen Rezak have taken up. Um, so, and I think it is a factor that should be taken into account when we look at the history of uh, Canada and its involvement in peacekeeping. And it does, we can do it in a number of ways. On the one hand, race requires a kind of reflexivity. You look 
at individuals and attitudes and, and, and beliefs and, and values and how they Im- influence behavior and policies. Um, so with respect to peacekeeping, we might ask ourselves, why is it that we believe Canada and Canadians are particularly well-suited to the role of peacekeepers? Why yes. do we see this as a Canadian tradition? And there is a hint of an exceptionalist logic here that I think can be further explored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, again, it's, and it's a history. I mean, the reality is that we expanded... Uh, peacekeeping through the 60s and 70s and 80s, and then really cut back dramatically in the 1990s. And to the, today, we've we have practically nobody uh, deployed in terms of peacekeeping. I'm just curious to see how how race uh, calculations would have been played out in terms of determining whether Canada would deploy or not. Um, the same well, thing. And, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. sorry. Well, I mean, Kevin Spooner, who has contributed to this volume, but has also written a book about Canada's peacekeeping mission to the Congo in the 1960s. Yes, yes. He talks about race mm-hmm. and in one of the ways in which it played into Canadian calculations about sending a peacekeeping mission to Congo was whether or not the Canadian peacekeepers would be mistaken for the Belgians and then what, right. how that might affect their experience. And obviously it was a, it was a difficult peacekeeping mission um, and it didn't go the way that many had expected that it would. It was a disaster, yeah. Yeah. Right. And then I think, you know, in the 1990s, I mean, the the uh, horrific evidence, uh, or pardon me, the horrific experience of Somalia, yes. I mean, shows that race and, in fact, racism yes. is a factor that affects interactions between peacekeepers and the local population. And it sort of bursts the bubble of confidence that Canadians are somehow, you know, naturally suited to this peacekeeping role. Um, would you say the same thing about Canada's overseas development assistance? Is there is there a racist or a racist or racial thinking uh, behind or that inspired or that affected Canada's assistance uh, to developing nations? So I think there is an angle there. In fact, I think there is an angle for race with respect to the history of development as a global endeavor, not just a Canadian one. Um, you know, historically, the reasons for Canada to participate in development, we'll often tell ourselves it's because there's a commitment to Canadian internationalism, um, that we do good in the world, that we understand that circumstances and problems in other parts of the world also have implications for Canada. So it can inspire a kind of do-gooding um, policy or set of practices. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it from a post-colonial view, there's also a sense that countries like Canada or the Western world and the industrial world, the Northern world, they should be active in development because their their actions and practices earlier have created kind of economic and, and political structures that created these conditions of inequality and, and, and deprivation in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, you know, when we think about race and are more reflexive about it, you might unpack the idea of why Canadians are motivated to do this and how others, in fact, see a responsibility rather than an expression of a virtuous foreign policy. So it's not just a question of seeing whether Canadian intentions are are racist or not racist. It's also a question of how Canadians see themselves and their missions around the world. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. So I think one of the, the things that race adds to our understanding of Canada in the world is that idea of reflexivity, that you look in and see what is going on, what shapes uh, the, our individual worldviews or official worldviews. A couple of the uh, contributors to the volume, Sean Mills and David Webster, use this expression of mental maps, which they yes. find really useful, yes. to understand our ideology. In, and that is what allows us to make sense of different kinds of, of policies and, and, and decisions. Is Canada exceptional in this regard? I mean, is this not something that uh, could be applied to pretty well any other country? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, if you look at the um, international histories of many other countries, they have long been looking at race. So we're catching up. We're catching up on this, are we? I think we are. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, just before we talked, I was looking at Michael Hunt, the American historian's book on ideology and American foreign policy, Mm -hmm. which he wrote in 1987. (laughs) And he has a big chapter on race and how race affected, again, ideology and worldview and the building of the American nation and then the projection of American nationhood and values thereafter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this race is hardly a new subject for international historians to grapple with. It's just a bit new to Canada. It's just a bit new to Canada. And again, that's why your book is so important. It's uh, it's an important new opening and an original, a new original view of looking at Canada's foreign relations or as Canada's role in in the world. You you your your contributors bring out a lot of examples of non-governmental players being active. You're, you you mentioned the attitude of the population, the population having its own prejudices, its own perceptions of race, that having an impact on the state apparatus and on politicians. You're bringing in many, many more players into the making of Canadian foreign policy, aren't you? Yes, and I think this also is a reflection of developments that are happening in the kind of the larger discipline of international history. Mm -hmm. So while the state remains very important and national governments remain very important as they do in this study, we think it's really important to still have the state there. Um, The ways in which Canada and Canadians interact with people and places beyond our own, well, plays out within our borders as well as beyond our borders. Um, and so we have all kinds of actors. You have missionaries, which actually is a long-standing Indeed. Um, group of people to look at in terms of contact with the wider world, and labor unions and cultural groups and journalists and um, intellectuals. And, you know, there's the idea that all kinds of people are participating in the way that Canada uh, as a more inclusive, eclectic entity, interacts with the rest of the world. And all of them act with their own worldviews, their own mental maps, as you're saying, uh, their own prejudices, let's be blunt right. about it. Right. How do you see this? Uh, or what do you think? I mean, we, a lot of scholars are looking at the 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 impact of capitalism on in shaping Canadian foreign policy. We're now looking at the role of women, of feminism. The Prime Minister, of course, uh, trumpets uh, feminist foreign policy. You're introducing the element of race. What do you think is going to be the next development in international in Canada's international history? So I could be cowardly and say that historians don't try to predict the future. <laughs> But we know, but they're always asked to. <laughs> we're always, we are always asked to. But I'll try. And in fact, the, one of my co-editors, David Marin, actually tackled this quite bravely mm-hmm. in his conclusion, um, where he thought about all the ways in which again, race is, I suppose, uh, indicative of how international history can be opened up in lots of different ways. So, um, and and it's sort of in some ways it, it's setting an agenda that perhaps others will take up. Or, or not, but it opens again. It opens up possibilities. For for one, I think you know there's a reason. There's a good reason to look at Canada's relations. You're looking at state-state relations um, in a far-reaching way. So beyond, say, the United States or France or, or Great Britain or China or other just other great powers, um, it's important to look at our involvement in the world in the 19th century. So most historians of Canada and the world write about the 20th century, right. and indeed, probably most of us write on the post-1945 period. Yes. But the 19th century is also, I think, a really important 
um, period to look at. And there, for something like race, you're going to see ideas of race articulated much more openly. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done, and David makes this point as well in his conclusion, on the relationship between the Canadian state and Indigenous peoples. Yeah, and it's interesting, again, and this is something that I'm noticing more and more, is that we're, historians are looking at the relationship between the Canadian state, and I guess to a certain degree the Canadian people, and the Indigenous communities, and the Indigenous people, I guess, uh, as as an aspect of foreign relations, not not a domestic uh, affair so much as a people to people, where where the Indigenous community is outside the Canadian state and therefore constitutes external relations. And I think there's a, a kind of a political um, principle driving that as well, right? But obviously, when you look at Indigenous. Canadian relations as state to state or external relations, mm. it also involves coming to grip with the facts that Canada as a settler society colonized Indigenous peoples, sure. you know, dispossessed them, um, put put children in residential schools. And so that kind of history of oppression and violence also needs to, it's, it's, a, it's a history of conquest and domination. That needs to be taken into account in understanding those foreign relationships, those relationships as foreign. What about diasporas? Do I mean once people have moved to Canada, uh, various uh, immigration groups, migrant groups have migrated, refugee groups also. Do you, to what degree do you think diasporas have shaped Canadian foreign policy? So this is not something we take up explicitly in the, in the volume mm-hmm. um, Dominion of Race, but I think it affects Canadian foreign policy in, in lots of different ways. Um, one of which I think it can change those mental maps that historians in the collection have written right. about. They they become broader and, and just more complicated. Um, I think also that the ex- diasporic communities in Canada forge connections. They help that branching out process. And we can think of something like, um, say, the election in South Sudan when it became independent and how much coverage that got in Canada because there's a large South Sudanese community in Canada. Mm -hmm. And then the South Sudan is now a relationship with Canada linked to development and assistance. I think the diaspora also really complicate Canadian foreign policy. It would be it would be too easy to think that diasporic groups have a single view on what they want sure, in terms yeah, of priorities. So indeed. they can uh, t- take the issue of Palestine and Israel. They're, they're very mm-hmm. complicating factors. Mm-hmm. And I also think, and I just came upon this recently, that they create opportunities and they give us some advantages in promoting Canadian interests and objectives in world affairs. And I'm thinking in particular of the fact that Prime Minister Trudeau recently invited the president of the Toronto Raptors, yes. Masai Ujiri, yes. to go with him to the, Africa, uh, the meeting of um, the African Union in Ethiopia to try to help them win support for their bid for a seat on the Security Council of the United Nations. That's right. Clever public diplomacy. And I think part of it, too, is about, you know, repositioning what Canada as a society and a nation stands for. And Prime Minister Trudeau often talks about the the importance of multiculturalism and immigration to Canada, that that has what has, has made this country and gives it an identity. And I think um, part of that is being testified to or played out in, in in doing things like asking um, Ujiri to come with him to the African Union meeting. It's a, it's a fab- fascinating development in the way historians are looking at Canadian international relations, but it's more than international relations. It's really about the place of Canada in international history, isn't it? It is. And one of the things I've been struck by is that with, as international history has moved in so many different directions, it's really a very exciting 
but uh, field, but it's again, it's got fingers in, in many, many pies uh, that used to be seen as sort of distinct disciplines or fields. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was often struck by is how Canada and Canada's history was never included in those studies, right. or very rarely, and how similarly Canada's international history was often really limited to our own experience and, and weren't necessarily seeing how we fit into this larger structure, larger patterns, larger developments. And so I think by folding in factors like um, Indigenous history or Indigenous relations and race and gender and class in particular, um, that it will make our history resonate more with other international historical literatures. And I think that's a really, that we are really enriching exchange and conversation to be a part of, rather than be on the outside looking in. Well, that's a very optimistic note on which to end our conversation. Thank you very much for talking to me, Francine. Oh, thank you for thank you for inviting me. Francine McKenzie is the chair of the History Department at Western University and co-editor of Dominion of Race, Rethinking Canada's International History, published with the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member or a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on February 13, 2020, and produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.